0: Last spring, the Adams administration began talking about the arrival of migrants into the city's shelter system. At first, the city placed the blame on governors from border states, busing people to the city and leaving them at the Port Authority with no resources. The city, Adams said, would step up and provide shelter when other cities wouldn't.
1: When you think about this country, a country that has always been open uh, to those who were fleeing uh, persecution and other intolerable conditions of uh, we've always welcomed that and this governor is not doing that in texas but we are going to set the right message the right tone of being here for these families
0: but by spring of this year adams was sounding a lot more like this the city is being destroyed by the migrant crisis And none of my
1: folks came to Washington, D.C. to fight for the resources that's going to undermine every agency in our city.
0: So what happened in between? How has migration, which has been a core of New York City's identity for so long, become such a headline issue? And why has the Adams administration taken such a dramatic turn? You're listening to the Hellgate Podcast. I'm Max Rivlin-Adler, a co-owner of Hellgate, a worker-owned local news website committed to covering New York in all its intricacies and complications, and sometimes its mayoral whining. On today's episode, we're going to follow the path of how New York City went from condemning busing migrants to becoming a city that now buses migrants upstate in much the same manner of Republican governors along the southwest border. I'll be joined by journalists Felipe de la Hoz and Gabby del Valle, who write the newsletter Borderlines. We get into how New York City has stepped up, where other states and the federal government have fallen short, while at the same time the mayor has begun using this influx of migrants to weaken the city's own social safety net and pit groups that rely on city aid against one another. I'm speaking with Felipe de la Hoz and Gabby del Valle. Together, they write the outstanding immigration newsletter, Borderlines. A lot of immigration reporting is myopic and focuses solely on the United States and puts everything through a lens of partisan policy and political advantage, while their newsletter fights against that, clearly explaining how decisions impact people, the long history of migration to the United States, and how what happens on the border has always directly impacted what happens in New York City. Felipe and Gabby, welcome to the Hellgate podcast. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Now, first, just to begin, let's like rewind a little bit from 2023. The United States has seen, to a degree, increased migration from Central America for a few years now, and not only Central America, from around the entire world. Uh, And that has stretched back into the Obama administration. From your perspective and your reporting, what's been mostly driving a lot of this migration and what's been kind of the impetus.
1: So there have always been pretty significant push factors from both traditionally Mexico and Central America, now increasingly also uh, South America, the Caribbean, Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe, kind of all over. Usually it's been, you know, a combination of people seeking asylum and then also people fleeing kind of climate disasters or um, bad economic situations. And all of that plus COVID has kind of coalesced into this massive wave, to use the term that is often used, of migration, primarily through the southern border. It's kind of different country to country, but I mean, for people leaving Guatemala, for example, El Salvador or Honduras, it's a combination of the economy, um, gang violence from people fleeing Haiti. It's the um, political instability and also the aftermath of several natural disasters, um, people leaving Ukraine after the war began, people leaving Afghanistan after the U.S. pulled out. It's, it's all kinds of things. And it really just depends on the situation in each individual country and then also just the global economic situation in the aftermath of the pandemic.
0: And, you know, uh, it should be noted here that one of the reasons why people come to the United States is like many other countries, It has signed treaties allowing for the right for people to come to the United States to claim asylum. And while the Biden administration has kind of messed with the order a little bit of when people can have that right to claim asylum, legally speaking, you do need to be in the United States to declare asylum and begin the process. So that's been a big push factor to the actual like physical border itself. You know, while Obama was no immigration dove, the Trump administration took a bunch of steps to really curtail immigration to the United States, including something called Remain in Mexico, which made people wait in dangerous Mexican border cities for, you know, months and months with some pretty disastrous consequences before they were allowed to come into the U.S. and declare asylum. Another policy curtailed access to asylum if people came through a third country. And ultimately, right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a policy instituted known as Title 42. So, What was Title 42 and what kind of situation did it create along the border leading
2: up to, uh, you know, its rollback a few weeks ago? So, I mean, I can get us started on that. And as you mentioned, Max, I mean, really the throughout the Trump era, right, under the kind of tutelage of arch xenophobe Stephen Miller, right, there was kind of a series of overlapping restrictions that were almost redundancies so that if one of them got struck down, there were others to kind of infill, you know, including way back when the now sort of exotically. Uh, referred to as the the asylum ban, which was just about crossing between ports of entry. So it was one thing after another. Title forty two, I mean, is really a public health statute. Uh, in fact, it's the sort of the public health title of the U.S. Code, and the actual specific section of Title forty two that we're talking about here, two sixty five, doesn't mention you know immigration at all. Really, it was sort of interpreted to say that people arriving in the United States without documentation, right? Because it did not exclude people who did have documentation, even though your sort of documentary status uh, is doesn't have any bearing on whether you have COVID or not. But it was supposed to be an anti-COVID measure, right? It was promulgated as an anti-COVID measure, technically by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, although really the CDC itself was strong-armed by the White House. Uh, particularly, there was a, you know, now kind of notorious call, I think, made by uh, Vice President Mike Pence. And so, Title 42 for a little bit over three years total from March 2020 until earlier um, in May and May 11th, uh, in some form or another, existed along the U.S. border and was used to expel people who were sort of arriving, so-called arriving aliens who were intending to seek asylum to essentially not allow them to even begin the process of seeking asylum, right? Not hear their cases at all, not put them through credible fear screenings or anything, but just to say You are ineligible to even be considered for this benefit because you are a risk vector for for disease. And, you know, there was a kind of absurdity that only compounded as time went on. For example, you know, people were often tested and tested negative before being expelled. So it was literally impossible (laughs) for them to be, you know, COVID vectors because they didn't have COVID. Nonetheless, right, you know, there were only a few exceptions that were issued, one by a judge, for example, that determined that unaccompanied minors couldn't be expelled, both administrations instituted different policies at different times to sort of exclude particularly vulnerable migrants of different kinds. But over three years, essentially, there were, uh, I think, over two million discrete expulsions that that took place, uh, you know, off, many of them actually have the same people who kind of kept trying again and again. And so, you know, that policy really became kind of the, the, the crown jewel of sort of Miller's sort of... Um, you know, framework of, of of border restriction and was continued by by the Biden administration, much to the dismay of a lot of, of advocates.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it was something that the Biden administration had campaigned against, said that they were going to end, um, did make attempts early on in the administration to roll it back. That was struck down by judges and and ultimately, you know, went through with it by declaring the public health crisis, you know, public health emergency over, um, which is how I believe they, you know, eventually got rid of Title 42. But even under Title 42, going back to last May, New York began seeing uh, an increase in the amount of asylum seekers, or at the very least, the Adams administration began talking a lot more openly about what they were seeing inside the shelter system. How has kind of that shift beginning last spring been different than other migration patterns? Is it Just that the Adams administration was making a a bigger deal about it? Or were these numbers really much larger because of some actions of of governors along the southwest border?
1: I would say it was a combination of both things. So even when Title 42 was in place, there was both an exemption process, people who were deemed to be particularly vulnerable in Mexico. And then there were also people from certain countries who just the US could not expel into Mexico. Mexico wouldn't initially accept expulsions of people, for example. From Venezuela, whereas um, people from Mexico, um, generally people from Central America, continued to be expelled. So when Title 42 was in place, there was this kind of strange exemption scheme where some people were allowed into the country, some people weren't. And it created a lot of confusion at the border and also kind of allowed for Republican critics of the Biden administration to say, you know if the borders close, then why are we seeing an uptick in people actually being allowed to claim asylum? Why are we seeing migrants, et cetera, et cetera, if you claim that you're expelling them all back to Mexico? And around that same time, last summer, um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott did start busing um, migrants from Texas to certain um, so-called sanctuary jurisdictions, one of which was New York. That was kind of a big shift. But another really significant shift was that according to reporting from the time and also our own interviews with migrants, more people who are crossing the border and claiming asylum now don't have any ties to the United States. They don't necessarily have family or friends or anybody who can kind of help them get settled. And the asylum process is set up to prevent you basically from working for the first minimum six months that you're in proceedings. So if you don't have anybody to kind of help you get started then you don't have anybody who can help you you know find housing um even find like kind of under the table work if you have no contacts at all and that kind of led to these compounding crises where all of a sudden thousands of people were arriving in New York City they had nobody to turn to for help other than the city government and at the same time the Adams administration had started kind of cutting back both homeless services and also other kinds of public services that asylum seekers would in theory benefit from as well
2: right you know, it it sort of became a self-reinforcing thing, right? So Abbott, you know, people like Abbott, um, bus people, and then, you know, the the sort of like word spread also your like, you know, channels like WhatsApp that, you know, New York City did have this right to shelter policy and stuff. And so it kind of became self-reinforcing. I also want to say, you know, um, there's been all this kind of like hand-wringing over like New York City being like a sanctuary jurisdiction and, and we're not and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, I think it kind of is a good uh, representation of how sometimes these 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 conversations can get muddled in a way, and people don't even really seem to understand the terms that they're talking about because really only a sanctuary jurisdiction only really means that you don't sort of actively cooperate with immigration enforcement more so than is legally required. I mean, that's really the only kind of base definition of sanctuary city. And so, like a lot of the time that we're you know we're having these kind of conversations, it's like, people aren't even really kind of comprehending what they're talking about. I think that's just sort of a good example. Not to mention that because a lot of
0: these folks have like begun the asylum process, they're not eligible for removal no matter what jurisdiction they're at. You know, it's it's not as if New York has in any way stepped up its game. But what it has done, it has its quote unquote right to shelter and um, a system and network That keeps people from settling on the street or sleeping out in the open um, and and has this kind of responsibility that it feels to both house and feed and, if need be, clothe a lot of asylum seekers and and migrants who come to the, the city. So Gabby touched on this a little bit, but what are the kind of limitations that the Adams administration is hitting up against here in terms of what they can offer people or, you know, how have they kind of limited themselves You know, it's a it's a large amount of people that are coming into the city.
2: But in the grand scheme of the large machinery of New York City, it's not that huge. Well, there are a few specific limitations. So, you know, Gabby already mentioned the work authorization piece is a big, big one. Right. So so individuals that are that are kind of arriving, they are eligible to apply for work authorization only five months post the application for asylum. So it's not post entry. They have to apply for asylum. Many of them don't do so for months because, you know, they, they can, or they don't know how or whatever. So after their first court hearing often is is when they're kind of made aware of, of the asylum process, right? And there's also a little bit of misinformation because people, you know, sometimes I've actually heard some complaints about this from service providers who say, you know, everybody keeps calling these people asylum seekers or asylum applicants, and they're not until they actually, you know, begin that process. A lot of them are, aren't aware of that. And so functionally, it can be a year More than a year before people actually receive work authorization, you know, from the point of point of entry or from even the point of arrival in New York. And so, you know, people can't work legally. They can work illegally. And then that becomes its own problem because a lot of them are terrified that this is going to be found out, that they're going to be found ineligible for asylum because they were sort of like violating the terms of their current presence. Right. Which which, as as we kind of mentioned before, is not technically unlawful presence, you know, in terms of then the the city dealing with these folks, I mean, there's also the issue that they're ineligible essentially for almost every kind of social service, certainly every federal social service, right? They can't receive SNAP. They can't receive like Section 8 or anything like that, right? That they're, you know, they, they become eligible for certain things after, you know, they receive work authorization. But by and large, they can't get a lot of the same types of benefits that other people can get, including, you know, state and city benefits, uh, notably City FEps, the city's own housing voucher that's supposed to actually help people leave city shelters and find um, permanent accommodations. And so migrants are actually largely ineligible for that, or at least for a very long time. So part of the, the issue, I think, and that what the city says is that they're, you know they're having folks coming in and when they you know cite these like census, the daily census numbers of the people in the city's care, you know, it's not just that people are arriving. It's like they they seem to be having kind of a very difficult time getting people out of the shelters. You know, once they've arrived, so it's it. You know, the the numbers are increasing, even if the number of arrivals stays more or less. You know, static. It becomes sort of a compounding thing, and and that's kind of why. You know, obviously, I, I have had raised you know certain qualms about the city's budget estimates. You know, in terms of the the cost for the care of the migrants over the next couple of fiscal years. But I mean, nobody really denies that it will go. I mean, it will run into the billions overall. Right. And so, you know, it definitely has been an issue. And the state and the federal government haven't really done that much to, to kind of infill either logistical or funding, uh, you know, shortfalls here. So it's kind of a, you know, I mean, it, there are no real easy solutions here for the mayor. I mean, we can, of course, disagree on how the the administration has reacted, but it wasn't, you know, a, a, an easy problem to solve. Hi there. This is Max Irland-Adler again,
0: a worker owner at Hellgate. I know you like our podcast so far. And wouldn't you like even more Hellgate in your life? Subscribe. Hellgate is New York City's only worker owned news site. Our goal is to bring our readers stories that are trenchant, playful, outraged, irreverent, useful, and never a chore to read. Go to hellgatenyc.com products to subscribe. Okay, back to the podcast. Felipe, you had written for Hellgate last year about what the federal government could do in this situation during a time where people are basically like being circulated across the country by these right wing governors uh, and some Democrats as well, like our mayor. That is one thing the Adams administration has really harped on, is that they need more help from the feds. And on top of that, it's kind of like uh, ruined his reputation with the Biden administration, which doesn't necessarily help if you're asking for for help. So what what tangible things could the federal government do or even, you know, somehow stop this circulation
2: of people kind of against their will? There are a few concrete things. You know, among the things that the Adams administration is asking for is some sort of expediting of the work authorizations. Unfortunately, the the sort of restriction on, you know, the 180 day restriction that we mentioned earlier is statutory, so it can't be overridden by the president directly however there are folks that are kind of calling for for example humanitarian parole in place to be issued for for some of the migrants that would in theory allow them to kind of receive work authorization much more quickly so i mean there are things like that i mean the the, the administration seems reticent to do that because it would be legally dicey and the other thing is sort of you know logistically right we have this this big refugee infrastructure it did stagnate a little bit over kind of like covid and uh you know, just the kind of the the Trump administration's sort of disinvestment in refugees writ large. But, you know, we have these these kind of voluntary agencies around the country, like uh, the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and all these kind of then local nonprofits that are sort of set up to handle refugees. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people have kind of raised the idea of like the federal government could take on a role that's sort of similar to the way that it handles refugees, where, you know, it takes them and it sort of places them already in communities where it's prearranged, you know, support services and it provides, you know, kind of these bridge programs for English language learning and housing for a little while and sort of tries to help people get on their feet. Obviously it's a little bit different here in that like refugees arrive with with, you know, basically permanent status. Whereas, you know, these asylum seekers are, are sort of in immigration court battling their cases. And so, you know, they very well might be ordered removed. But they are still here for a while. And so like if the government wanted to, it could provide some of these logistical supports. You know, ICE itself, right, it has a big contract fleet of like planes that could be used to transport people around instead of like leaving it to, you know, Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. And the government has done stuff like this before of like giving people bus tickets to places where they've already kind of uh, agreed to to kind of take them in and, and things like that. So there's there's a definite logistical issue here. And then obviously there's just the the, the raw financial issue which is that, you know, FEMA has a fund that was set up to help you know, municipalities um, that are that are kind of spending a lot on, on migrants. But like New York has gotten, I, I can't remember the exact amount, less than one hundred million dollars so far. And it probably will get, you know, less than that in, in, in tandem. And I mean, it's like, come on, you know, <laughs> like that's 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 two weeks of, of the funding. Yeah. And, you know, well, Eric Adams,
0: as you've written about, has kind of used um the large amount of dollars that need to be spent housing migrants to to possibly blow a hole in the budget for other social services while not cutting from places like the police. Um, it's still a large number that the city has to pay for, which underlies its very significant efforts to put people in hotels, house people, find places for people, uh, which leads to a story that you wrote, Abby, last week for New York magazine about people who had been shifted around the city to a few separate places as the Adams administration tries to find space for people. What were some of those conversations like and who did you talk to?
1: So I talked to a few people um, who are waiting outside of a respite center that is a former office building that was used by Toro College that is across the street from the Moynihan train station. One of those people was formerly staying in, um, a school gym that had been kind of used to house migrants and asylum seekers for, I think, maximum a couple of days. But then there was this kind of outrage um, among parents in certain neighborhoods about migrants being housed in these school gyms. There was this chant uh, at one of the Williamsburg schools. We support asylum seekers without a school of grounds. We support asylum
2: seekers without a school of grounds.
1: And the other people I spoke to actually arrived in New York City so recently that they had gone or the city had sent them directly to this respite center in the office building. All of them had pretty similar experiences and that, you know, they were from Venezuela. they had come to New York for a mix of reasons, some of them because they heard that this is a place that treats migrants relatively well. Two of them had actually mentioned that they had planned on going to Florida and even had friends or relatives there. But then, because of the situation with Governor DeSantis, were advised against going there, and then decided to come to New York. All of them are, on the one hand, grateful to have a place to sleep um, and basic food stuffs, but on the other hand, um, very anxious to work. Don't have access to um, full bathrooms. There are no showers in the respite center, so they've been using um, water bottles to kind of take sink showers. Um, And, you know, people are both relatively grateful and incredibly frustrated, not by what the city is offering or isn't offering them, but by the fact that there are these legal constraints to them um, being able to find work. Every single person I spoke to said, you know, I want to find a job. I want to be able to find an apartment. I know that if I can find work, I can get myself out of this situation. But legally... They are not able to do so.
0: You know, which is a great point, considering that New York state has suffered a huge out migration of people to southern states especially black New Yorkers and immigration on the whole is super down from during the Trump administration till now. So New York does need a large influx of people coming in who like want to work um, and could potentially become taxpayers that could go to school here. It is like a net positive for New York City to see people come here. And yet it's being kind of treated as if it's this huge burden when really I feel as if New York has kind of Done a lot more than a lot of other places. How do you see this all kind of playing out, especially as New York has this, you know, reputation as this city built on immigrants and immigration as we kind of move ahead? While the numbers have not really exploded since the end of Title 42 last month, is this just going to be a constant kind of battle between the Adams administration asking for more resources? Trying to bust people upstate, shunting them onto communities that don't want them, or is there kind of a release valve here that the city can tap into?
1: So one thing that concerns me is that when this all started a year ago, the the busing and people arriving in increased numbers, um, both city officials and everyday New Yorkers were kind of like, "We're going to band together. You know, we don't support what Abbott is doing. We're going to show the country and the world that New York is a place that supports migrants." And a year later, you've got. Everyone kind of trying to pass on responsibility to a different jurisdiction. And you've also got people who I think would generally consider themselves pretty liberal, pretty pro-immigrant, kind of reacting against migrants. You know, you have the protests outside of these schools in Williamsburg, um, for example, of people kind of saying that services or like the things that are meant for New Yorkers, for U.S. citizens are instead being offered to migrants. And so that kind of worries me. Um, It seems like it's kind of an echo of this broader kind of shift where the Biden administration started off saying, you know, we're going to undo the harms of the Trump administration and has instead like implemented many policies that were first implemented under Trump, many of which were also um, struck down by federal courts.
2: Yeah, I think that this was kind of actually the long game for for Abbott uh, and and sort of DeSantis et al. You know, with the kind of bussing people unannounced in New York and stuff and and sort of, you know, the Martha's Vineyard thing and all this. Initially it was framed as I wonder they're pointing out, you know, like blue state or blue city hypocrisy and sort of all this stuff. And I think maybe they saw it like that a little bit, but I really do actually think that part of the long term calculus was like the base of support for these people is in these places right now. If we just kind of like, you know, send all these people with without uh, any kind of proper coordination, we just start, you know, sending these people to New York, creating this kind of crisis perception. Right. Like the numbers of people, you know, and I think it's it's worth emphasizing are not enough to overwhelm, you know, the capacity of the United States to receive them. It just is not the case. But like the way that it was done, I think, was calculated in order to make the support for migrants collapse in places where it was the strongest like New York City you know and and i i do believe that was an intentional result of this you know what gabby's kind of saying now more concretely i mean what we're going to see i think in the next few weeks is first there's a lag i think between the kind of collapse of arrivals that we've seen at the border and and as you kind of alluded to there was this kind of fear of a post title 42 surge or whatever that did not materialize that's largely because actually the 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 Biden administration preempted it with with new restrictions. You know, the numbers didn't surge. In fact, they've they've generally gone down. Uh, And so I think there's actually going to be maybe a a slight dip in arrivals in New York that might come just as a result of kind of fewer people coming through the border and coming up to to kind of New York at this stage where it's been about a year since kind of this first started gaining steam as sort of an issue. There are going to be significant numbers of people who are going to start gaining work authorization in sort of the next couple of months. And so I think that's actually going to shift the dynamics a little bit. I think the Adams administration's response has been a little bit weird in the last you know, few weeks. Like this new busing thing is a replication of the thing they were condemning. Uh, you know, the Governor Hochul announced that she would allow you know, the, the Adams administration to begin using a decommissioned detention center in Harlem to to house migrants, which was kind of a fear of some people, right, that, that, you know, sort of like actual detention facilities would begin to be used for this. And so, you know, we might have uh, you know, more of that and that sort of the gyms thing was like, a, seemed like poorly thought out. So I think they're a little bit teetering right now. I think the migrant crisis has become sort of this kind of overarching, all-encompassing issue in New York right now. Maybe a conspiratorial, cynical person might say that the, the Adams, you know, that Eric Adams sees it as kind of a, a way of presenting himself as like the big man of action that has to take the tough decisions. You know, never let a good crisis go to waste, as they say. You know, I think to some extent he wants to, you know, present himself as being boxed in and and kind of railing against the Biden administration as he's doing now and, and raising his profile a bit, too, with with sort of all of this.
0: Right. Not to mention um, achieving some some goals that mayors in New York City have long had, like going after the city's right to shelter responsibilities, where it could actually have long term impact on unsheltered people in New York City. If you're able to get in front of a judge who rolls some of that back and says, oh, you know, if it's during a crisis or numbers hit this amount, you're no longer responsible to shelter that many people. Bloomberg, Giuliani, they would have loved to have achieved that to be able to kind of turn people away and not to have spend so much money on DHS shelters or emergency shelters or things like that. So, yeah, like you said, not to let a good crisis go to waste. Gabby and Felipe, thank you so much for for speaking with us. Where can people find more of your work and your writing?
1: Thank you so much for having us. Um, You can find us on Substack at borderlines.substack.com. You can find me on Twitter at g a b y d v j. That's Gabby with one b d v j.
2: And I'm on uh, on Twitter at uh, Felipe D L H. That's F E L I P E D L H. And I also uh, sit on the New York Daily News editorial board, which you know I'll caveat with saying that is of course not my personal opinion. <laughs> it is our. Consensus opinion, but you can find that consensus opinion, <laughs> you know, at the uh, the Daily News Editorial Board. All right. Thanks so much, guys.
0: That's it for this week's Hellgate podcast. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. Our editorial team is Adlin Jackson, Nick Pinto, Christopher Robbins, Esther Wong, Katie Wei, and me, Max Nadler. Nadia Teicholsker is our business manager. Lauren Vespoli is our producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find their music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutch Studio. During the week, check out hellgatenyc.com for daily reporting, in-depth investigations, and more stories about New York City. And if you like the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.